Well, in our home, we have a sort of ongoing joke, or really it's a phrase uh, that we say in our home, my wife and I, to one another, that captures a response that we often get when before dinner every night. Uh, usually in, in our home, the, the cadence is that uh, our, our kids get screen time. They get to watch shows. Uh, in about the 45 minutes between, uh, before, while my wife is preparing dinner. And somewhere about 15 minutes before dinner served, I usually get home, and I come in, and, and I'll go to the kids. They're watching the TV, and they're sitting on the couch, and I'll say, uh, hey, can you guys turn off the TV? And this is the response. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you hear me? Uh-huh while watching the TV show. A minute or two later, hey, can you guys turn off the show and help me set the table for dinner? That's why I usually have, let's, let's get the dinner table set. It's, it's time to get together as a family and talk about our day and eat together. Look at this amazing food your mother's made. Uh, can, you guys, can you guys do that? Can you help me set the table? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right? So some of, you, some of you may be looking at your spouse right now. Maybe don't look at him right now because uh, your spouse maybe sometimes does this. Maybe you know your kids do this. Uh, we all know this response, and we laugh at that response. However, uh, we often have the same response when God speaks to us. Right? It's that response of, I, yeah, it's registering. It goes in one ear and kind of out the other. I hear you. Uh-huh. But I'm really going to do what I want to do right now, right? What we're going to be looking at today is a letter to the church in Pergamum, continuing our series in the letters to the seven churches. And Jesus is going to say that that response, that response to God's word when it's clearly spoken into our lives is deadly for us spiritually. See, this church that was in Pergamum, they, they did many things well. In fact, it, it says that they held fast to Jesus' name. This is in verse 13. Again, we're in Revelation 2. That's verse 13. They held fast to his name. They didn't deny the faith. They had many, actually, truths that they obeyed. But as we're going to see, they had areas of their life, areas that when they heard God's word, their response was essentially to hear God's word and go, uh-huh, and then do as they please. So Jesus warns them, and as we're going to see as well, Jesus warns them because the, the reason why he warns them is because he wants them to have life. He wants them to have life to the full, the life that they were intended to know in him. And so this letter holds intentional words. We, we subtitled this series, Intentional Words to Make Intentional People. These are intentional words from Jesus to his people, to the churches throughout all time. And today we're going to see these intentional words from Jesus who are to make us intentional, intentionally obedient people, people who intentionally take hold of the life that we are offered in Christ. And so we're going to see that what we need is we need a double-edged truth. Then we're going to look at second, that that double-edged truth helps us to avoid living double-minded lives. And if, when we do so, what it does in the end is it produces full-hearted obedience. 
Let's pray and we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that you would make us a single-minded people, a fully devoted, full-heartedly devoted people. Lord, help us, as we often say here, uh, we want to be people who know, love, and obey you. Lord, that, that would even be no love and enjoy, and the obedience just flows out of the enjoyment of who you are. Lord, we pray that you, wherever this needs to land in each of our lives, wherever it is that we find ourselves just kind of nodding and saying, uh-huh, and then going on our way, living by our own opinion, uh, Lord, that you would reveal that to us. And so, Spirit, would you, you do that work? Would you speak to me? Would you speak to us? Would you reveal where this deadly tendency is surfacing in our lives? so that we might be a fully devoted, full-heartedly devoted people to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, look at verse 12, this double-edged truth. What do we mean by that? Verse 12, it says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So we have this image of Jesus essentially standing, so the, the word of him, which would be referring to Jesus, kind of standing over the church with this sword, with this two-edged sword, standing over kind of in this image of judgment that's impending, looming over the church, awaiting their response. Now, why the image of a double-edged sword? You know, I, when I read this, it's, you know, and you read the rest of what's going on here, you almost imagine Jesus would be standing over, just kind of like, right? Just kind of shaming them or whatnot. Why this image of Jesus with a sword? Not just Jesus looking at him like, you know, face palm, right? Like when he's looking at the church. But standing with the two-edged sword of judgment. Why is that? Well, first, why the two-edged? Why not just a sword, this is very key to understand the two-edged sword. The reason why there's this image here is because, the, it, it, we're, as we're going to see, the sword is discerning between truth and falsehood. In other words, the sword is this standard of judgment of whether or not something is being done according to what God has said is true. And the two-edgedness is that truth cuts both ways. Here's what I mean. Truth says both what is true, what you should do, truth also, and normally the side of the, the sword that we dull, normally the side of the sword that we ignore is the side that also says what you are not to do. We could say the positive side and then also the explicitly negative side of truth. What is true and what is false. You need both to fully have truth. So, for instance, you see this early in Scripture, positive. You can eat of any tree in the garden, explicit negative. Do not tree or, or eat of the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? We have this in our lives, right? Positive, sex is good. Neg explicit negative, don't mess around outside of the God-given context, marriage, lifelong. Sex is good. Don't play with fire here, right? We have food is good, explicit negative, don't be a glutton. You have football is good and enjoyable, explicit negative, don't miss church, right? <laughs> uh, it's your annual reminder, couldn't help myself. Uh, but if we want 
to know the fullness of life. This is why Jesus is giving this word. Why he takes one of the seven letters to say this. If, if we want to know the fullness of life that is offered in Christ, what's offered throughout Scripture, the joy, the peace, then we must allow for truth to cut both ways in our life. To compromise, to dull one side, be disastrous. Or another way to say it is if we hear God's word and there are areas that we say, that's easy for me to follow. Let's be honest. We all have areas where we hear something in God's word and we go, that's, that's kind of natural for me, whether because of my upbringing or because our society reinforces it or just it fits my personality. And so it's an easy thing to obey, but we all have areas. I have these. When we hear God's word, and we hear the explicit negative usually is that thing. When we hear it, we go, uh-huh, and then live as we please. Now, the question with this is the obvious, which is, is this because God is just this cosmic killjoy, right? God in His truth and His his word, and so these standards of truth or falsehood, and is it, I remember this old saying about the, uh, the Puritans, right, which the Puritans were these people full of joy, but historically the way we think of the Puritans is, I remember somebody said it's as if they were thinking, so they, they were a, a, like a really devoted Christian uh, a group, you could say, or movement in church history, and they said, but the Puritans were very much about purifying themselves in holiness, and so they said it's as if they thought somebody, they had this sneaking suspicion that somebody somewhere could be having fun, right? And they're like on guard, like somebody, is, is God like that? Is God this killjoy who's like somewhere holding a sword going, oh, is someone somewhere having fun? Ah, oh, right? Is that the picture that we have here? No, if anything, what Scripture presents is that God is very serious actually about killing anything, removing anything that would kill our joy. God is about protecting our joy. Again, we say this again and again in anthem, true freedom, as we tend to think of in our day as this libertarian freedom, get to do whatever you want. True freedom is actually found in choosing the right constraints in life and choosing those constraints and committing to things and committing to other people and limiting our freedoms. There are limits I place on myself every day for the sake of being a dad and being a husband, being a pastor. And those are healthy limits that bring joy, healthy constraints are the place where freedom and joy is found. And so God protects what is true and what is false. He protects it. He reinforces it because within that we find life and joy. So one of the things is this image of sword, ironically, ironically or not usually the way we think of it throughout Scripture, is used to capture that reality of what God is doing. So let me just trace this image very, very briefly. Sword is an image, a word that's found all throughout Scripture, but it starts with first backing up. I want to be boldly repetitive about this. If you've been coming, you've heard me talk about this, but it's helpful to just keep repeating it. Before the foundations of the earth, God existed as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God, the reason why First John, John, the same author of Revelation, says in First John 4, God is love, not because 
love is God, and whatever we make sentimentally of love becomes God. No, God is love. He's a fountainhead of love, the Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Spirit, the Spirit loving the Father and the Son, and vice versa. And out of that comes an overflow of delight within himself. There's a triune community where God is a, a community eternally of love and delight. God created out of an overflow of that reality, like an artist overflows with a passion for for beauty or a lover, and they write poetry, and they make paintings, and they just express it. And God created the world we live in, creation, as just an expression of that delight. That's why some will call the world a theater of glory, of God's holiness gone public. And God then creates that world. And this is why it says in Psalm 19.1 and other places, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. The heavens proclaim and pour forth speech. Because God created this place that's meant to be this place that teems with his glory and this love and this delight, and he created us as human beings in his image, which means we have the unique capacity to relate to God, to walk with him, to know that life, to join in that delight. The entirety of scripture, of creation, is God who is eternal love inviting us, his creatures, to know that love and to be embraced in that and then to live our lives cultivating that. That was the whole vision of Genesis 1 and 2. It's amazing. Even marriage, what Adam and Eve are brought together, he says you get to even partner with each other in that as a lifelong mission. It's an amazing vision. But what happens is that in the midst of it, what we see by the time we get to Genesis 3, is that in order to live in that world, that means that our world is also hardwired with the moral character of God. In other words, we're designed as creatures to live in a world that's designed according to God's glory. So if we live outside of that design, it won't go well. And it's not just a matter of you broke the rules so you should feel bad. No, what happens, this is why we also break down psychologically if you murder someone or cheat on someone or steal from someone. Why we have psychosomatic issues over the course of our lifetime if we don't deal with those things. It's because everything is hardwired with God's character, physically but also morally. And so therefore, if we hear God's word, like in Genesis 3, you can eat of any of the trees, but not this one. And essentially, it's, uh-huh, but I know better. I'll live outside of your design. Just that little trajectory pollutes the entire thing. And it diminishes the further we go in making those decisions and saying, uh-huh. It diminishes the fullness of joy and life that we were made for. And so what happens is God then places, and this is getting to this imagery of the sword throughout Scripture, God then places them, sends them outside of the garden. And when he sends Adam and Eve, humanity, outside the garden, because what God is doing is he's sending them outside the garden because now there's a virus that we as humanity have, and God needs to deal with that virus before it pollutes everything. And he says, I don't want them to eat of the tree of everlasting life because if they eat of it, then they'll live forever in this state. So send them outside the garden to where then they can't eat of that tree, but instead I'm going to deal with, free them from that virus, heal them, and God sends them outside the garden. And what does he protect the garden with? The first image of the sword. It says in Genesis 3, 24, he drove them out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, an angel, 
and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now the sword becomes, as it turns every which way, discerning through, between, every truth and every falsehood. The sword now becomes this line, this standard, a judgment, an ability to discern and cut between what is true and what is false. And in other words, until that is dealt with, we cannot be in the presence of the Lord. We cannot be in paradise. We cannot, this is why in a second I'll show, this then comes into why we can or cannot be in the promised land, why we cannot have the promised life, why we cannot return to paradise. This must be dealt with, both in this life and the next. The next time that this comes up, as I just referred to, and it comes up again and again, this image of sword, but a major place is again with an angel of the Lord showing up when Israel is just getting ready to enter the promised land. You have Israel's enslaved, they're freed by God, they're wandering in the wilderness, God's dealing with their hearts over generations, and they're ready to enter the promised land. They're like, yay, milk and honey, we're going, right? And Joshua's getting ready to lead them in, and right at the end of Joshua 5, right before they enter the promised land, and all these promises begin to be fulfilled by God, that they will dwell with him in this chosen land that will be kind of like a new Eden, a new garden, it says this, he encounters an angel. They're entering a new kind of garden, and they encounter an angel. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or for them? And the angel said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. He doesn't say it. it's, it's not whether God is for you or God is for them. God is for his glory. You can imagine he has the sword and he draws line in the sand. He says, it's not you or them. It is God, his glory, his holiness, his truth, his being, who he is. That's what matters. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth. He realizes this and worshiped him and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. If we want to enter paradise, if we want the promised land, the promised life, if we want to know the holy presence of God in our life, we must allow God's sword to cut both ways. This is why then throughout the Old Testament, whether it's Israelites themselves, the people of God, or it's the nations, you, you see this again and again where there's an invitation to turn from however they're living, to turn towards truth and what God has revealed and if they don't turn, then there's a warning following the invitation. And if they don't listen to the warning, then finally there's judgment. And how is that judgment described again and again and again in the Old Testament? They were cut down by the sword. God's judgment is that then that sword will cut right through you. Because in the midst of you, there's a line between good and evil. Still alive and well in the New Testament, Hebrews 4 
talks about the Word of God. So what God does is He graciously makes known to us in His Word, Old and New Testaments, the Bible, God makes known His Word, and it says this. It says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So He's picking it up, the author in the New Testament, saying, hey, just like they entered the promised land, just like you want to enter into that promised state of rest, of abiding in who God is, experiencing His presence and having His grace and peace in your life and joy, if you want to enter that, so that no one may fall by the same sort of discipline. So you don't fall away. For the Lord, he says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Again, what will happen is God's word will is a gift, and sometimes it cuts and it hurts. Because what God's word does, it discerns where when us, there's truth and there's falsehood. It can be painful at times, but it also is, it's not like a madman chasing you down an alleyway and cutting you. God is a surgeon. It's not a matter of, okay, this is a sword and it cuts and truth is sharp and so we should just dull it because it could hurt someone, it could hurt me, it could offend me at times. No, the thing is you never dull it, you put it in the hands of the right surgeon, of the right person who will wield it well. And God's word in God's hands by God's spirit will cut surgically to remove the cancer. Now, I will right there say something and God's Word points us to the promised life. It points us to that promised land. Uh, we are, after this, doing the Bible workshop. I, you know, kind of, well, this works today. Uh, next three weeks, a Bible workshop where I'm walking through how to 930 to 1030. If you haven't signed up and, you're, and you want to go to that, there's still a few spots open. Um, so you could still jump into that. Knowing God's Word and having God's Word stored in us is one of the ways that God awakens our heart to live in alignment with his truth. And so if you're going, I don't know how to read the Bible, I'd love to know God's word, today is an opportunity. The next three weeks we'll be working through the book of Philemon. It'll be very practical, pen to paper. I, for years, and I became a Christian, right at the beginning of college, people told me, read your Bible. And I was like, I would read my Bible, like a book of Revelation, because I thought it would be kind of crazy to read it. And then I'm like, I have no idea what this is saying, right? And so no one ever, and it took a while before someone sat down and said, here's how you read the Bible. I want you, when we say, being God's word, to know how to read the Bible. So, if you're able to, be there. But, in other words, half-hearted, double-minded truth won't do. It won't get you into the promised land. And then we have, lastly, right before this in Revelation 16, when John first sees the re Jesus risen, it says, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a two-edged sword, a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. From the beginning of Genesis until the end, when Jesus comes with his word, the reason why Jesus now stands in judgment is Jesus is saying, I want you to find the way back into the garden, back into life with me, to joy. Now, before talking about what that looks like. Because Jesus is going to go there at the end of this letter. Let's look first at the parallels between what's going on in Pergamum and us and how if we don't live with that double-edged truth, what will happen is we will live double-minded lives. And it's very deadly. 
So look at verse, well, first. So the church at Pergamum uh, were, seemed to be very double-minded. Uh, in some aspects, they seem to be listening. In other aspects, they're kind of in the uh-huh, uh-huh, right? Uh, why? Well, a lot of it was the influences. They seemed to live in a very, like, the city wasn't a Christian city. Let's say it that way, right? Uh, so look at verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Well, that's pretty. <laughs> that's quite an indictment. Uh, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not even deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So what does he mean, this, where Satan dwells? Uh, Pergamum first was the first major city that made a temple to the Roman emperor. Uh, it was also known, it was kind of famous for this, that almost if you were in the city, there was a hill outside the city, and this, the hillside was filled with all these temples, and it essentially was to all of the different pagan gods of the ancient world. And at the center of all of these temples, you can imagine if you looked over the hillside and you, you saw this every day when you walked out, at the center of it was a, this like altar that looked like a throne that was meant to be the place of the throne of Zeus on earth. So when he says this is where the throne of Satan is, what he's saying is the entirety of this world that is against me, that Satan has deceived, and there is literally a throne at the center of all this, you live in the middle of all those influences. Right? And there are parallels in our day. I mean, it, just, it might not look that explicit, but it could be what your social media scrolling looks like every day when you get on social media. In other words, we can sympathize with them because, in other words, there were tons of influences. No, there's nothing reinforcing. Like, listen to God's Word, follow God's Word. Everything is reinforcing. If anything, deny God's Word. Or if anything, pick and choose. You know, the good things, God's love, God's grace. Some of the other things that are harder, just kind of, uh-huh, and do as you please. We all have these. Now, the way that this, he gives an example, it's from Balaam. I say Balak, I can't remember how Nick said it, but ba ba Balak, I think. Uh, but he says in 14, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. This is an interesting thing because he refers to something that takes place in, in Numbers 22 through 24. This is in the days of Moses. And there, Balaam was a prophet uh, from Moab. He was a, a pagan prophet. And God actually came to him and said, I want you to speak a blessing over Israel because the king Balak hires him in order to speak a curse over Israel. And when he hires him, at first Balaam's like thinking he'll do this, but then there's this whole famous episode where he's going down the road and like his donkey's thrown off it and there's like the sore, an angel meets him and is like, no, you're not going to say the false thing. And, and God meets him there. And actually Balaam actually ends up in Numbers 23 and 24, the king keeps pressing him, and he keeps saying, I, I can't not say what God told me to say, and so he blesses Israel. What's interesting is you read the actual chapters, and Balaam seems to have done the right thing after that episode of encountering the angel of the Lord. So what does it mean here that he said these things? Well, what's interesting is Balaam had spent this time telling them, Israel, you're blessed, you're not cursed, but then it seems that on the side he knew, he developed a scheme where he knew actually, though, you can tempt them. You can get them to curse themselves if you will just 
tempt them, where they tend to say, uh-huh, and turn the other way. So in Numbers 25, all of a sudden, even after Israel's been blessed by him and he hasn't cursed them, it says, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods, so Israel yoked himself to Baal, Peore, and Peor. And the angel of the Lord was kindled against Israel. In other words, what happened was Israel, God had even directed Balaam to bless them, all the good things. But where they fell were in the areas that they were willing to say, uh-huh. And then they would go in because it enticed them with their flesh. Sex is a timeless one. Social acceptance by offering sacrifices to their gods is a timeless one. The first century equivalent in the days when this letter is being written, verse 15, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We saw this a few weeks ago. In other words, he's saying just like it happened in that day, you have today now some who are saying, you know what? Just focus on the good things and the rest of it that you don't like. Just go, "Uh uh-huh, and live how you want. Now, what I'll say is in every generation, there are Balaams and there are Nicolaitans, and you can always, in other words, find somebody who will reinforce your opinion over God's word. Especially nowadays, you can find every little niche on every subreddit, you can find it on whatever your YouTube channel is, you can always find somebody to reinforce your viewpoint. Now, that's the interesting thing. Because see, here's the thing, this is what I felt when looking at this, I was like, you know, oops, geez, I can't do that. Uh, You know, when um, Jesus says here, you are harboring them, you're allowing this to continue, this influence. So essentially rooted out, removed this. Now, what's interesting is he's talking to the church and he's saying, you have this influence in the church, and in their world, you could remove that influence, right? It'd be like if I was saying something and preaching that was off base from God's word, if there's something going on in a small group at this church that was off base, if there was some leader here, uh, you know, Nick got up here and he was like, you know, everyone bow your knee to Baal. I'd be like, uh, you're fired, right? Like, it's not going to work. It's not going to fly, right? Like, we can, we, can, we, can, we can deal with that, but here's why this is important. In our day, our influence is not limited as much to what we're hearing in our local church, In other words, in our day, it's more upon every believer, upon you and me and our personal lives to limit or remove the Balaams and the Nicolaitans in our lives. I don't have access to your phone, whatever is being streamed or whatnot. You have to get that access. We, we constantly are deluged. In other words, I probably for every single, if you consider me your pastor, if this is your home, or any of our pastors on staff, for every pastor, you probably have 10 pundits in your life that speak 10 times more of content into your life on a weekly basis. And so we have to remove them. Now, what's interesting, I just read a new book that's out. It's something, uh, The Unchurched is one of the biggest surveys on unchurched people who have left the church and why they've left the church. And one part that I found striking when I read it the other day, 
was that actually, statistically, the reasons for why people left the church is mainly because of influences outside the church. And here's the thing. It wasn't just leftist progressive. Actually, if anything, statistically, more people are leaving the church because of actually socially conservative, conservative sources outside the church. So it's not just safe to just passively consume content because of maybe it's political standing. It can breed character habits in your life and cynicism even towards God's word and God's people. What I want to do is I want to just quickly point out in Psalm 1, I want us to think about this in our daily life. Because we have so many influences in our life and we have to catch ourselves because we all can go down a road where something that we want to say, uh-huh, uh-huh, Lord, okay, and go our own way. And that could be, I know, all the hot-button issues, sexuality, it could be gender, ideology, um, but it could be all kinds of things. It could just be, I want to live my way. I want to do what I want to do with my finances. I want to treat my spouse and go on however I want to do it, have whatever attitude I want to have, whatever lifestyle it could be. For all of us, it's different. However, Psalm 1 talks about this, where there's this disposition, where it says, blessed is the man who walks, now notice this progression, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I want you to notice the progression. I'm not sure if we have the verse there. I may have forgotten to send it to him. It says first that the first step that will often happen in your life is you'll catch yourself, you'll hear, and you'll have an uh uh-huh. And then what you'll do is you'll begin to walk with and take counsel with somebody who's going to give, tell you what you want to hear. What the heart wants, the mind will rationalize, the affections will find desirable, the will will find doable. If you set your heart on something and grab a hold of it, what will happen is you will begin to rationalize your reasoning for it. And one of the ways that that usually happens, as it says in Psalm 1, is it says, first you begin to walk not in the count, or walk in the counsel of the wicked. And so you begin to question God's word, and you begin, and it goes from kind of just going out for a stroll to then starting to, to, to stand in that reason. It says, then you stand. Then you come to this place, you've gone out for a stroll, and you begin to question, and then you begin to stand and reason and, and go, yes, I want to live in this way. And you begin to live a life and, and live out actions that you never thought would be possible. You start to develop dependencies, and you find yourself all of a sudden kind of looking around going, wow, my life, never thought I'd be doing this. How did I get here? Well, you went out for a stroll with the counsel in your life. And then after you begin to stand, then it says, then you begin to see, sit in the seat of scoffing. You go out for a walk, then you begin to stand in it, and then you become resigned to it, and you begin to live in it and sit in it. And that scoffing, do you find yourself scoffing at God's people? Do you find yourself scoffing at God's word? Do you find yourself scoffing when you hear somebody pursuing holiness and you kind of scoff at them and kind of make fun of them? They could be warning signs that there are ahas in your life and it's beginning to drift you off course. Because here's the thing, we tend to think like, you know, I could have this one little area, 90% of all the things God says, I think I'm following those, and so that one area, I can kind of seal it off, and I have that on the side, but look, I'm doing great, but here's the thing, that's not the way it works, because this all starts in our hearts, and what happens is it permeates everything. So it's not as easy as like, well, these two things, 
uh-huh, uh-huh, Lord, okay, I'm going to do what I want, but these areas, I'll, they're all yours, Lord. What happens is whatever happens to your heart here will then pollute and corrupt everything over here. And what happens, in fact, as usually what you'll feel is instead of, okay, now I'm sitting, what you'll feel is, okay, I'm over here, and you'll feel the double-minded life. What will happen is you'll begin to reason, and part of your life will feel like it's over here, the other part here, and as that chasm increases, it begins to divide your soul. And you'll find less of the peace and the joy that's over here, and you'll find more and more over here, and you'll be living a double-faced life, a two-faced life. It's exhausting. Usually anxiety and exhaustion are the first signs. Do you find yourself going down that way? God does not want you to live that life. It's deadly for your soul. He says, instead of having that double-mindedness, have a single-minded devotion and have full-hearted obedience. That's last. How do we cultivate that? Look at verse 16. It says, therefore, repent. Well, there we go. That's blunt, right? Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So what is repent? Repent is to turn from double-mindedness. To repent is to turn from having, if you know there are areas, like, yep, as we're talking about, I mean, when I was reading this this week, I was like, ah, I should not be preaching this, right? Because I know there are areas where I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, Lord, and I do whatever I want. We all have those areas. And what he's saying is when you know that, repent. When someone else in your life, we're going to highlight community groups in a little bit, small groups at the end of the service. When those things, when you, when you have others in your life to say, wait, you, you seem to be doing everything right, but then over here, it, man, you're lingering for a long time after work with that female coworker. You guys sure are enjoying each other. Something going on? What he's saying is when you become aware of it or somebody else is willing to come into your life and, and, and ask the questions, are you willing to turn, repent just to turn? It's not just turn from, turn from the sin, that's bad, but to turn to life, to turn to life, to trust that God has given you life. And then, or else it says, the sword comes, in other words, I'll cut you off from my presence. We may cozy up to sin, but the Spirit won't be party to it. When we cozy up to sin and we knowingly do it, and going, "Uh uh-huh, to God's word, what happens is slowly but surely, and we expect, we want to know where the intimacy, the spiritual vitality, all these things are, God will not bless that. If anything, God's sword will show up and it'll divide you and you'll live, your conscience will be racked and you'll be living with this guilt. And the question is, what do you do with that? And so what then next he says is we have to respond though in order to repent, we have to hear God's truth. And so it continues that in verse 17, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This imagery of if you have an ear, then hear. Now, now when it says if you have an ear, hear, it doesn't mean like if you have an ear, like you hear it and you go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Like it kind of goes in one ear and out the other, like heard that, right? No, what it means by to hear in Scripture is that then you would, like we read in James earlier, that you would be doers of the word when you hear the word. If you truly hear God's word, then you respond accordingly to God's word. Now, this is a fascinating thing, and I want you to think on this. We tend to think of wanting to have intimacy with God, uh, the presence of God in our life, and we think of it in terms of physical proximity. Man, if Jesus were physically here right beside me. But here's the thing. What if Jesus were physically right beside you, but you didn't listen to what he said? John Gottman, who's a famous, let me break this down in terms of, because here's the thing. God wants a relationship with us. John Gottman, who's a famous sociologist, he can predict marriage to a 94% accuracy. 
And one of the primary ways he can do it is he puts couples in a room and he watches them. And this is what he said after all these years of research. He says, you know how I can tell? One of the primary ways. He calls it the bid. If, if one of the couples says to him, like, hey, look at this meme, you know, on my phone, or look, you're driving down the road and you go, hey, look at that over there. And the spouse essentially goes, uh-huh, uh-huh, doesn't take the bid, it doesn't take an interest in what they're saying, doesn't respond. Hey, honey, could you help me with this? Uh-huh, uh-huh. He said, that's a massive predictor of divorce. The same is true in our walk with God. When God speaks and we live our life just going, uh-huh, uh-huh. We're headed for divorce. God speaks to us. So we would respond, that is the entirety of presence. That's the entirety of intimacy. When you're without with your spouse, uh uh-huh, uh-huh, it doesn't matter if they're physically close, that proximity. What it is is the give and take. It's the speaking and the receiving and the responding to that and and talking and responding. That's the intimacy. What God's inviting us here, he says, hear and know me, walk with me. It's you responding in obedience where that intimacy goes deep. Scripture is not just like, hey, you get in some factoids and that's it. No, it's responding to God's word. That's where you experience his presence. That's where you begin to experience the spirit within you working through God's word. God has invited us to that. Now, as that happens and we respond to God's word, then we also begin to receive something. And by the way, what that means is when you hear God's word, sometimes it means that you have to put to death sin. You put, you take the sword to it. You take the sword to falsehood that you're believing. This is why, why do we do it? Because as John Owen, he was one of the Puritans, he once said, be killing sin, lest sin kill you. Sin will kill you. So be killing it. Take the sword, the double-edged sword to it. Then receive, lastly, last part. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Interesting imagery here, isn't it? Hidden manna, all these things. Here's the thing. What he's saying here is when we want to just say, uh-huh, uh-huh, the reason why often we can't trust God and follow him is because we believe whatever the thing when we ignore him, then I can actually get life right? We don't say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, because I want to be miserable, right? We go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, because I think going this way, God, instead will be more pleasurable, will be more comfortable, will give me more life and joy and peace and happiness, right? Prosperity. Like, we, we assume that. That's why we go that route. And so, what he says is, trust me. There may be things in this life where you can't see, but I will you have a hunger and you're trying to satisfy it by going after these things, but I will give you a hidden manna. And what even seems like the wilderness, and it seems like you're going to starve if you follow me, believe me when you follow me, I will give you a spiritual nourishment, a joy, a peace, something that you can only receive from me, but you need to trust me and you need to receive it from me. I'm telling you, it is hard. If you're young, if you're young right now, I feel like an old guy, right? If you're young right now, uh, if you're, if I remember when it's like when you're single, man, do you trust that God will give you that hidden manna if you're not gorging yourself as you swipe through Tinder? 
Do you, do you trust that God will give you the hidden manna when at right now you're working through tons of stuff that's probably like decades of plaque in your marriage? Do you trust that in all of your relationships? Do you trust that in terms of following God if he says, this is what I want you to do with your finances. This is what I want you to do in this. You know, stop gossiping at work and, and stop controlling things. That whatever it might be that God is calling you to stop as well as do, do you trust that when it's going to be hard that God will nourish your soul? He will give you hidden manna. Because here's the thing that he promises. He says, I will give you a stone with a name written on it. What he's saying there is, I'm going to give you a completely new identity. In the ancient world, you gave somebody a new name, and that meant they were yours. And only you will know that name. Only by you walking in obedience and you receiving from me, it's, it's, you want to hear from God personally, this is where you hear from God personally. That as you walk in obedience, God in, in that response, that God in his spirit begins to speak deep into your soul. A truth which is that in this world where you feel like you're hungry and you're starving, this is, and we actually just talked about this at Salt on Thursday night, coincidentally, this hidden manna is like what Jesus says in John 6 where he says, I am the bread of life. I came down into the wilderness, into the brokenness, into the swirling of half-truths and lies that are fighting for your soul. And I came into this world, and instead of just standing over you and tisk, 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 Jesus sees that the reason why we go after these things is because we think if we, usually what we're doing is we're numbing our guilt, we're trying to hide from something, we're just trying to find a little bit of life versus facing things that we don't believe there'll be any grace for. But here's what he says. He says, do you know that I came into the world? I am the ultimate manna. I am the bread of life. Whatever you are starving for, I will feed you. And I came down into flesh in took, and I took on your sin. And what did I do? I climbed up on a cross and I allowed God's judgment to cut me. You can enter the promised land because I went under the sword. You can enter the grave and you can know that it's not just for final judgment because I went under the sword, but I will not, I will not then after that and inviting you into that, I will not then stand back while I allow that just to be corrupted and polluted again. I will not allow it in your life right now, and I will not allow that in paradise forever. And so Jesus stands now with the sword of truth, and he says, Lord, or he says, listen, no life. I have given you life. Your identity can be fully in me, righteous and forgiven, where you don't have to run after these things to numb it or to push it down. but you can start with this identity and I will whisper every day of your life into your soul, you are mine, you are mine. As you respond and you walk in obedience and you realize that he is enough, that is worth taking hold of God's word, taking hold of God's truth and allowing it to divide you, allowing it to cut so that you might remove the falsehood and pursue life. Repent, respond, receive life from Jesus. Allow God's word to cut both ways so you don't become double-minded and divided and exhausted, but single-minded. So you'll live with a full-hearted obedience and full of the life that Jesus promises. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you, you cut, Lord, with truth. You discern between 
truth, and falsehood. You make known to us the path of life. Spirit, would you, for each of us, wherever this is that we have a tendency to say, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, Lord, we're probably even blind to it. Lord, use others in our life to help point it out. But Lord, if we knowingly know we're going out, reveal to us where it's leading to just that dividedness, that exhaustion, that hiding, that loneliness, that isolation, wherever it's, it's surfacing. And Lord, would you restore us to the joy of salvation, restore us to a place of freedom, restore us to a place of enjoyment of your word and your presence. Lord, would you bless us as a people with that, make us holy, make us sanctified and ready for your presence so we might know life. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.